There. <laughs> I am reading Nehemiah 5, 1 to 12a. Then there was a great protest of the people and their wives against their fellow Jews. Some said, with our sons and daughters, we are many, and we all need grain to eat and stay alive. Others said, we have to mortgage our fields and our vineyards and our houses in order to get grain during the famine. Still others said, we've had to borrow money against our fields and vineyards in order to pay the king's tax. We are of the same flesh and blood as our kin, and our children are the same as theirs. Yet we are just about to force our sons and daughters into slavery and some of our daughters are already slaves. There is nothing we can do since our fields and vineyards now belong to others. I was very angry when I heard their protests and these complaints. After thinking it over, I brought charges against the officials and their officers. I told them, you are all taking interest from your own people. I also called for a large assembly in order to deal with them. To the best of our ability, I said to them, we have bought back our Jewish kin who have been sold to other nations, but now you are selling your own kin who we must then buy back. At, at this they were silent, unable to offer a response. So I continued. What you are doing isn't good. Why don't you walk in the fear of our God? This will prevent the taunts of the nations that, that are our enemies. I myself, along with my family and my servants, am lending them money and grain. But let's stop charging interest. Give it back to them right now. Return their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses and give back the interest on their money, grain, wine, and oil that you are charging them. And they replied, we'll return everything and we won't charge anything else. We'll do as you have asked. This is the word of the Lord. Will you please pray with me? Loving and gracious God, we give thanks for your spirit that fills our world and fills our lives. And we pray that you will experience your spirit this morning with us, that we may hear your word for us. Amen. At Urban Grace, we usually begin our stewardship season by telling the history of our church and the legacy of serving downtown that we inherited from First Baptist. When we focus, and then that, that's usually our first week, and then we focus on what makes our faith community unique and beautiful today. I'll often pick a few stories that demonstrate who we are and where we're going, and why this place is worth investing in. And I'll still tell a few stories today, 
But I want to say up front that this feels really different. Because my favorite stories, the ones I love to tell, are about what we've done together. And we've spent most of the last 12 months apart. And while we were apart, of course, our community was alive, but it was fragmented. I remember bumping into a pastor, probably around a year ago, who asked me, how's the congregation, Ben? And I replied, I don't know. It's been so long since I've seen them. Like, we have programs to connect and support one another, and I hear cool stories about families joining together to make a pod to cover uh, childcare and schooling. But it's really hard to know what's happening in people's lives when you haven't seen them for a year. And I imagine folks in the congregation would have said something similar, where they asked, so, how's Urban Grace doing? Well, online worship is great if you like scripture told by puppets, and there was this great article in the News Tribune about the renovations in the building and how the church is thriving, so I'm sure they're busy, but it's hard to say what everyone's up to. So this morning, I want to go a little bit behind the scenes and share about the last year. Twelve months ago, COVID was in full swing. Most of our leadership meetings revolved around when and how we could safely return to worship. Our our staff was spending a lot of time preparing online worship. You know, Sheila was coming up with creative ways to provide spiritual care, and Jason was planning an amazing Christmas pageant. But honestly, our staff had a little bit more time on our hands than normal, which gave us an opportunity to serve in a way that we never could have imagined. And part of the reason we couldn't imagine what was coming is because it wasn't really the result of a church program or some wise strategy. This actually started around a fire with my friend Chris. Uh, Chris is the executive director of a nonprofit that supports grassroots leaders in the hardest of places. He, it's like he creates a home for God's free agents. And Chris had started to get to know one such person, a man named Onyx. Onyx had been forced to flee his home in Uganda because being queer in Uganda is illegal and carries the punishment of life in prison. So Onyx fled to Sudan, where people tried to kill him in his sleep because of his sexuality. Fortunately, he escaped and fled to a refugee camp in Kenya. But things were no different in Kenya. The queer community faced violent attacks from police and local residents. So Onyx and a a couple other organizers uh, sort of gathered the queer community, and they they put the Kenyan government and the UN on blast. Uh, For those of you who don't speak millennial, they gathered evidence of their persecution, wrote an email demanding protection, and copied every human rights organization and UN official they could to, to keep folks accountable. This drew international attention, and in response, the UN moved a group of about 200 refugees out of the camp as they awaited resettlement. But 
for those of you who know anything about the resettlement process, it takes years. And these folks weren't safe. I mean, Onyx, for example, learned that the group that were, had tried to kill him in Sudan was, had, was now in Kenya looking for him. And his situation wasn't unique. His community was under serious threat, so he founded an organization called Marepa uh, that provided a safe house for queer refugees outside Nairobi. And I, of course, I'm hearing all this from my friend Chris, who asked, tells me this amazing story and then asks how I want to help. I'm, you know, wide-eyed and eager before he chuckles and said, but you know, we might be getting conned. Because Onyx was just a guy with hustle and grit. He had no official backing. His organization hadn't been able to be registered. And there was no one on the ground to confirm that his story was true. The, and because of this, the organization that, that Chris ran couldn't support him directly. But they could uh, pay for Onyx's son's education as long as the sort of small group of donors understood the risk they were taking. So Emily, my wife, and I started supporting Onyx's son, Raheem. And, and actually, to this point, for a while, Urban Grace was completely uninvolved. Until a few months later, when I, I got another call from Chris, uh, Marepa had run out of money. The residents of the safe house were about to get evicted and most would have to resort to sex work to survive. Chris wondered if Urban Grace could help. Like, as a church, we actually have more freedom to support an individual. Churches support missionaries, so we could theoretically support Onyx. But providing financial support to an organization on the brink of collapse is pretty fraught. It can lead to a power dynamic where the donor is devoid of any responsibility or accountability or relationship. But we still wanted to help, as we believe that the gospel calls us to serve those in need. We, we felt our congregation would want us to work on behalf of those whose lives are in danger because of their nationality and their sexuality. So our staff discussed it and and pitched it to our leadership council. Can Urban Grace provide financial support while our staff provides organizational support to help Marepa become a, like a independent financial, like become financially independent? Because it just so happened that Sheila and I had both lived in the developing world and had worked with uh, nonprofits. And Jen's previous job, where she started doing fair trade, was in a church working with missions focusing on sub-Saharan Africa. And because of the pandemic, we had a little extra time. And our church leadership thought this was a wonderful way to use it. So Sheila worked with Onyx to create a website and develop newsletters for potential donors. Jen helped him set up a financial, like sound financial practices and helped with grant writing. And I worked with grant writing and sort of helping him find a donor base. And, and Onyx, of course, just kept hustling. He, he got Marepa officially registered with the Kenyan government. He brought furnishing and food for his community. He kept in touch with the UN to learn about refugees at risk. 
And then in the evenings, he would like write grants and newsletters on his phone because he didn't own a computer. By spring, Maripa was well-established enough that Urban Grace could become their fiduciary agent, and Maripa started receiving funding from sources in the U.S. It was an honor to get to support an amazing person doing amazing work. It felt like a wonderful use of our staff's abilities and time. Time that was actually soon disappearing because this was the late spring and folks were getting vaccinated and it was finally safe to return to worship, which we did. We began worshiping regularly, weekly, in July, in person that is. And, and, and let me say, it's been so good to be back together. We, we had no idea what it would be like. We, we did expect that uh, we'd probably have a little bit smaller attendance because for some folks, it, it wouldn't be worth the risk to gather in person. And that, that's been the case, it's, which is really understandable and expected. But what we didn't expect was the number of new folks that made their way to Urban Grace during COVID. Since our return, I guess that about 25% of the folks on any given Sunday are new post-COVID. And we found there's a, a common story. Many folks were a part of churches that failed to respond to systemic racism or didn't welcome queer folks or didn't allow the gospel to challenge their previously held political or social beliefs. And I share that because it's a big part of our ministry at Urban Grace to, to be a faith community that can talk openly about how racism and patriarchy and homophobia and nationalism has affected the church and has shaped us as people. We're a community that wants to be transformed by a gospel written for and by the disinherited. So it has, it's just been a joy to see more folks find their way to urban grace. And it was also pretty exciting to have an infusion of new folks at this particular moment in the kind of like July and the late summer when things were starting to, to pick up and we as a church were kind of restarting. COVID was dying down and we were filled with hope that, you know, folks would continue to, to return and join the new folks who just arrived. And, and on top of that, we hired two amazing staff members at the church, Reverend Bianca Luna, who is overseeing our children and youth ministries, and Elisa Hayes, who's doing congregational care and has taken over for Sheila. And at, at the same time, building activity was starting to pick up. We, uh, and our previous facilities coordinator, Justin Larson, returned uh, from a big job in Seattle because he loves this place and wanted to serve here. And, and I, we were just excited as we planned for the fall. Then, of course, COVID hit, or Delta hit, COVID cases rose, hospitals became overfilled, and our future became even more uncertain. Honestly, it was probably around this time in the early fall, August, September, that we sort of shifted to 
accept the reality that, that we have no idea what the future will hold. We don't know what church will look like in months to come. Will it be safe enough for everyone to return? Will we be able to go on old church retreats again? Will the breakfast move back inside? Will the building return to its previous level of activity? I don't know. I really don't know what the future holds. I don't know exactly where we're going, but I think I know how we'll get there. Together, but the same way that God's people have always navigated uncertainty. I mean, the Bible is, is filled with stories of how God accompanied people of faith as they, they faced life-altering events and uncertain futures. I mean, that's what's going on in our text today. And, and I'll just do a little bit of, of lead into what is happening in Nehemiah. At the beginning of the 6th century BCE, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem and took 20,000 people about captive, forcing them to leave their homes and migrate north to Babylon. These folks, this community, lived in exile for 50 years until it was safe for them to return home to Jerusalem. But, and it's, it's funny, like, I always think of that as like, oh yeah, the exile and everyone comes back, but it didn't happen all at once. There, there are actually two books of the Bible that recount the return to Jerusalem, Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra tells of the first wave of Jews returning in the year 538. Nehemiah recounts the fourth wave of people returning in 445 BCE. Almost 100 years later, people were still returning while others stayed behind in Babylon. The, the long-awaited return from exile was slow, complicated, and completely different than anyone expected. And honestly, that feels pretty familiar. I mean, not the part about being taken captive in a foreign land, but the period of exile where life drastically changes and we look forward to the day where things can return to the way they used to be. But then, of course, reality hits and we find the return is slow and, and filled with the hard work of rebuilding a new life together. And that's, that's the story of Nehemiah. The, the book really particularly is about how the walls of Jerusalem were rebuilt. But today's scripture teaches us what that actually looked like. So Nehemiah had this master plan. He uh, divided the population up into 42 different groups and then gave each group one section of the wall. And then in each group, half the workers worked to repair the wall while the other half worked to protect the wall from foreign attacks. And then they this, this system of blowing horns to like, it, it was a whole thing. But it didn't matter how good the plan was because there is severe inequality among the people. The rich were exploiting the poor. So Nehemiah put everything on pause and held a public hearing 
where he called out the rich and had them return their land to the poor, challenged them to forgive debts and no longer take interest. And he led by example, forgiving the debts owed to him. He Basically, this whole chapter is about how the Israelites had to be one people, working together to establish God's justice in an unjust land. Their plans were not nearly as important as their unity and their mutual sacrifice. And again, that that feels familiar. We don't know what's coming, but we know how we'll get there with unity and mutual sacrifice as we work for God's gospel of truth and justice. As as my friend Chris says, when we say yes to the Spirit, who knows what will happen? (laughs) And and Chris says lots of things. Not all of them are profound. But but he said that one in reference to to how we said yes to the Spirit when we met Onyx and had no clue where it would lead. Because as, you know, as we were here in Tacoma, returning to worship and you know, bringing on new staff and restarting youth group, this group of queer refugees in Kenya were being resettled at a rapid pace. And now when I, when I first got to know Onyx, I knew that he was a refugee awaiting resettlement. But, but being a refugee re, like awaiting resettlement is sort of like being, I don't know, a kid on the JV basketball team awaiting you know, the NBA to draft you. Like, it, you gotta keep the dream alive, but usually it's just a dream that never turns into reality. I mean, it's something like half of 1% of refugees get resettled. And in, like, in my former home in Cairo, there were something like 100,000 Sudanese refugees in the city waiting to be resettled. So when Anik told me that he was a refugee waiting to be resettled, I, it didn't even really almost occur to me that he would actually be resettled anytime soon. And now that's also because Onyx didn't mention the part of the story where, this is about to get wild, uh, and I haven't been able to confirm this, so I'll just say, as the story goes, Vice President Mike Pence allegedly called the Secretary General of the UN and told them to do something to protect this group of queer refugees on the news, and in response the UN, and this is the part I do know happened, the UN fast-tracked their resettlement process, and parts of the process that would usually take years took a week. And yeah, I I hadn't heard that part of the story. (laughs) I didn't really hear that much about his resettlement actually happening until Onyx asked if I would be his US tie so that he'd be resettled in Tacoma. He'd been worshiping with us every week online, dreaming of one day joining us in person. I mean, when we say yes to the Spirit, we have no idea where it will lead. I mean, in this case, what, what, two months later, Chris and I picked up Onyx at SeaTac. 
And I mean, this is probably familiar to some of you, but Syrian Manwa hosted Onyx in their home, and we, the church, assembled a team to support Onyx transition to America. In fact, they met this morning before church. Many of them are here. And I have written down right here that Onyx's dream of worshiping in person became a reality. And well, this is where I was going to say, and he's here with us this morning, excited for me to share a story, but I actually, oh no, you are here, Onyx, awesome. When I started, I was like, I didn't know if he'd made it because it's so good to have you. But Onyx is here with us. We don't know what is before us, what is coming. We simply say yes to the Spirit. It's what we've always done and what we'll continue to do. And I won't be so foolish to predict what, where we are going. I simply want to ask you to join us on the journey. Join in any way that feels right for you. Maybe that's like joining one of the groups like the book group or the class on purity culture that we just wrapped up or the stuff that we'll do in, in January. Or help out teaching Sunday school or youth group or helping with Sunday morning worship or one of the many opportunities that Amanda or Bianca or Elisa would be eager to tell you about. Or join by committing to church to support the church financially or join by joining the church. We have a very low pressure meeting for folks that are interested on, on January 6th. Join us on the journey. We, we don't know where the spirit will take us, but we know we need one another to get there. And we'd love to have you by our side. Amen.